Hello, and welcome to Nostalgia Marcana. I'm your host, Doug Leaf. Each episode of this podcast, we'll look back on the movies, TV, games, people, and phenomena that we still love talking about all these years later, and ask ourselves why these bits of pop culture still enchant us today. This week, we'll be revisiting... Today we're talking about what is arguably the best Schwarzenegger movie. It's arguably one of the best action movies. It's arguably one of the best sci-fi movies. And it's definitely one of the best sequels ever made. I am thrilled to be talking about Terminator 2 colon Judgment Day today. This is, of course, a uh, James Cameron classic. Um, it redefined what action movies could be. It, uh, just like one of our recent topics, Jurassic Park, heralded the the dominance of CGI, um, but the bottom line, it's just a great flick, top to bottom. It's incredibly entertaining, and uh, I have not one but two people coming back in time to stop me from doing this podcast. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know him from many of our past episodes, including, like I said, most recently Jurassic Park and Simon's Quest. Uh, he is a regular at the West Side Comedy Theater, where you can see him perform with Mission Improbable, uh, and he also teaches improv if you want to learn how to do it yourself. Welcome back to the podcast, Rich Baker. Hey, thanks for having me as always, Doug. And uh, our other returning guest is uh, from our Karate Kid episode and our Superman episode. He produces storm chasing videos and a ton of Karate Kid content uh, on his YouTube channel. Please welcome back Ken Cole. Hey, Doug. Hey, Rich. It is an honor to be here talking with you guys today. Hell yeah. Yeah, I will uh, start, as uh, we always do, by asking about your nostalgic memories of Terminator 2. Uh, Ken, why don't you go first? Okay, well, I guess my nostalgic memory of Terminator 2 is being, gosh, 12 years old, seeing the advertisements on television and desperately wanting to go see it, but not being allowed to go see it at all. Because it was rated R, and I, I wasn't allowed to go see rated R movies uh, when I was that young. And so this was one of those movies that I waited for till I was allowed to watch, and uh, I watched it. And I loved it just as much as I thought I would have when I was 12 years old. And um, I think I would have been okay to see it at 12 as well, but that's just me anyway. But that, so that, that longing, that journey of hope waiting to see that movie is, is what I, what I'm more most nostalgic for. Okay. Rich, how about you? Uh, a few different memories. One, I did see this in the theater. Uh, if anyone's listened to other episodes before, they know I have the older brother hookup who uh, got me into see movies that were way too uh, beyond it. Cause I was, I just turned 10 when this come out, but, uh, I love seeing it in the theater. I actually saw it in the theater twice. And, uh, I remember when it got VHS and it had that cool case and I was so happy to own it. You know, I, I was trying to think about my nostalgic memories of Terminator 2. And I, 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 all I can remember is I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it on VHS for the first time, but not long after I was, you know, I, I was probably, 11 or 12 uh, whenever it came out on vhs that is when i saw it 
And I think my dad was the one who let me watch it. And the reason I don't have any like solid memories of it is because I just watched it so many damn times that it's just a, you know, a wash of just being blown away by this movie over and over again. Now, I'm curious, did either of you see Terminator 1 before you saw Terminator 2? Yes. I had okay. seen Terminator 1 once on VHS. On a, I saw Terminator 2 first. I'm in the same camp. In fact, I've probably only seen Terminator 1 twice in my life. Uh, and that's not to say it's a bad movie. It is a well-made, interesting movie. But right. there's no way I'm going to pull that one off the shelf over this one. Um, it's just no. it's one of those very rare sequels that not only improves on the original, it amazingly kind of obviates the the original in that I've never seen a sequel so deftly give you all the information you need to know about its predecessor so that like if you never watch Terminator 1 you'll easily have a great time watching Terminator 2 because they perfectly like deliver you every bit of information you need to know yeah yeah it's uh i i know i'm sure i'm sure a lot of people even to this day have seen Terminator 2 that haven't seen Terminator 1 and it's fine <laughs> it's it's such a self-contained movie yeah i agree and you know, I will say, though, Terminator 1, I think, is excellent. I think Terminator 2 is excellent. And I think it's just so much more accessible to so many more people, I think, as just a straight-up action movie, a spectacle movie. Um, that first Terminator movie, I know probably maybe the special effects are a bit more dated, and that might kind of throw people off a bit. But um, if you are one of those people who's seen Terminator 2 and likes it and has not seen the first one, I definitely recommend check out check out the first one. Definitely I would recommend that over seeing any of the later ones, which oh yeah, um, we can all just pretend they don't exist. And Every single one of yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly what the Sarah Connor Chronicles TV show did. It just yeah. picked up after Terminator 2 left off and said, uh, she didn't die of cancer. She's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although I think it takes place when Connor is still pretty young. Um, so it's you could slot it in between, I suppose. Yeah. But I just... Uh, I think Terminator 2 has had the legacy it's had, not only because, you know, it is the more mind-blowing in terms of special effects. I think it's better plotted than the original. But I think it's just an, a lot richer of a story. There is yeah. surprisingly a lot more depth to these characters and more thematic stuff in the movie about who we are as a species and um, and our relationships with, like, like John's relationship with the Terminator, as, you know, as, as Sarah says, a surrogate father... Yeah. None of that kind of – the first one never even attempts that level of depth. No, the first one is a, a pretty straightforward – I mean, it's a fun premise, you know, with the sci-fi angle and the back in the future. But, like, this movie really is, like, a drama and an action and a sci-fi and an epic tale, like, all at once. And the first one was a really good action movie. Yeah, I thought the first one, I think, is an excellent action movie, sci-fi, horror – very tight movie. Like, I, I really, I'm a huge fan of Terminator 1 as well. But yeah, the second movie, you can just see in the casting, just like the production design. It's almost like if James Cameron had the budget for Terminator 1, like, you can see what was in his brain, what would have been possible. And he just had that budget. He could go to town and, you know, you had John Connor, played by Edward Furlong in this one. And I think would appeal to us like you know like rich when we were younger like the yeah. 12 year old in me you know i was like oh wow like this kid's in it too and um it just i think it spanned generations it, it's uh it did a great job it is in that uh little sub of like a kid and their unconventional pet 
You know, sure. like like ET is in this or like Lilo and Stitch is like the the mirror version of that or there's so many of these movies where it's like yeah, kid paired with you know something that's not a dog. But beyond that like not not just like the kid angle, it's kind of amazing to me this movie almost didn't get made or didn't get made in the format that we got because of like the weird rights issues about you know this guy who was like clutching onto the rights to, to Terminator 1 and you had uh the film company was a Carol Co had to bid a, you know way more than they wanted to to get it back and they did make they threatened James Cameron we're making it with or without you like all of these like stars had to align and like Schwarzenegger himself had to kind of get in to like you know force this movie to exist but i mean what you know the arguably the pinnacle of all of their careers so it's it's uh, yes. it's a good thing they did it yeah i feel like there's a lot of movies like that that where it's like this shouldn't have gotten made and then it wound up being like a huge hit, you know, for a lot of reasons. But I mean, obviously, we, we're still talking about this. This movie was, I think the budget for this was 102 million. <laughs> and it made. In 1990 or 91. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then it made double that. So, like, it was, you know, early on, well before Marvel, of just like, we're going to sink a shit ton of money into this in the hope that we make a double shit ton of money out of this. Yeah, and that money is all on screen, too, because it is shocking how good this movie looks. Considering this is, again, like the dawn of CGI, it looks impeccable today. You could release this today and and no one would bat an eye. It is extraordinary. Yeah, and I think uh, it relates to what you guys were talking about, I think, in your Jurassic Park episode. Everyone check that out if you haven't heard it yet. Um, But just how well, even though that was an early case of CGI in Jurassic Park, just the shot design, the concept on how you use that specifically, uh, just make that just continue to be timeless in terms of special effects. Like you can still watch it now and it's fantastic. This movie is like that. It's just, it's early CGI, but it's so well designed. All the effects are so well designed about what CGI could do and couldn't do. And the mix with practical in there as well. Um, it's still a masterclass in special effects, I think. Absolutely. Like 100%. And I think you're, you're dead on about like the, they are so judicious about when and how they use it because they know it's, you know, this is this nascent art form and technology that, you know, they, they are very careful. I mean, yes, it helps that mostly the CGI is a, a silver blob, but yeah. he he's highly reflective. Like he has to look like he fits in the environment and he does like they, but, but again, turning to what the other thing you mentioned was the practical effects of like any time that like the T-1000 is like burst open and like, I know it's a puppet. I, I should, but I just believe this is a metal man who oh, yeah. is you know, going to reconstitute himself. Yeah. Great acting. Great. Uh, 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 costuming like and the sets i mean I, we'll talk about when we get the scenes but i mean some of the sets are still some of the best sets i've ever seen in an action movie yeah they're really evocative considering how like almost minimalistic they are it's like a shopping mall uh you know a, a freeway and like a big culvert and like a you know a spot in the desert an office building like these are not places that you normally think of as like you know, it ain't Rivendell or something that's going to blow your mind when you see it in terms of its composition or its, you know, creativity. But somehow James Cameron is able to shoot this stuff in a way that makes it all feel iconic. Yeah. Yeah. And even adding to that, it's like, this is one of those movies where everything lines up, everything fits perfectly, um, including, you know, not only the cinematography, the sound design, the yeah. score, 
I mean, yeah. how minimal that synth score is, but like how menacing, like it, it just, it all creates this such, such a unique vibe that's, I don't know, singular in film history, I think. And it's, it's a really deft thing he, they do as well in terms of the score because it's, you know, they have to evolve the score from Terminator 1, which is more synth heavy. It's much more 80s synth heavy. And here they, it still feels of a piece with the original while still feeling you know, a little more orchestral and kind of the right fit for this film. Yeah. The music is both the score and the soundtrack. I think the mu- music for this uh, movie works really, really well. Yeah. Well, let's get into it because uh, we're going to cover the whole movie and that's going to take a while because it's a it's a long one. And there's probably a few interesting deleted scenes we might want to mention along the way. If you've ever seen that director's cut, um, I've I'm on record in this podcast as generally not liking director's cuts because there's a reason they're cut the way they are for pacing. And so sticking those scenes back in there usually don't work. But for the sake of like learning a little more about the world and the plot, like they they are interesting to see. So um, let's talk about this opening. Um, So we. The first thing we see is a couple of shots of late 20th century Los Angeles freeways in like in kind of wavy heat lines. Like there's this like kind of ominous sense about them. The music is really ominous. And it's all of like 20 seconds of this footage until we cut to the horrendous future that is 2029, just a scant six years from now, (laughs) where the world is beset by robots and skulls. And uh, Sarah Connor tells us most of the plot of Terminator 1. Three billion human lives ended on August 29th, 1997. The survivors of the nuclear fire called the war Judgment Day. They lived only to face a new nightmare, the war against the machines. The computer which controlled the machines, Skynet, sent two Terminators back through time. Their mission, to destroy the leader of the human resistance, John Connor, my son. The first Terminator was programmed to strike at me in the year 1984, before John was born. It failed. The second was set to strike at John himself when he was still a child. As before, the Resistance was able to send a lone warrior, a protector for John. It was just a question of which one of them would reach him first. Uh, Gentlemen, your thoughts on this opening? It's kind of like the crawl from Star Wars. It's like, oh, there's everything we need to know. But unlike the crawl, it's, it's also showing and not just telling. And it's really, it's the, it's just a great way to start this movie. Yeah, 100% agree. It's like, it's the perfect use of visual storytelling. It's just so, it's efficient, but it's, it just feels natural. It's something you wouldn't even notice, I think, unless you were looking for it. But but you look at it and go, wow, this is just amazing storytelling. And and we're hooked. And now we have to watch the whole thing because we can't not watch it, even for the hundredth time. Yeah, there's two things about this that stood out to me on rewatch. Number one, you know, I was thinking about like, why are they giving us, 20 seconds ish of 20th century footage, you know, the, 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 the simpler approach would be like, we'll just start in 2029. Um, but I think it really helps underscore the themes that they're going for, where it's like this, you know, our crowded, noisy, ugly human lifestyle leads to this, right. The, the, the whole movie is about this warning that like, this is where we're headed. 
And so I like that they start there. The other thing I like about it is they're, this is all you get of 2029 in the movie. You don't get much of it in Terminator 1 either. And I'm sure that there would be a temptation for the director to put in a lot more. Let, let's see a lot more of what this looks like. But by giving you only just a glimpse of it, um, I think it's much more effective. And the proof is something like Terminator Salvation, which is basically all set during this time period. And it's a big womp womp of a movie. Like it's, yeah. it's, it seems like it's it's one of those things like it sounds cool to spend a lot of time in 2029, but it's actually like less interesting than than the rest of the story. Yeah, I, I yeah, it's like uh, I, mean, I don't cook, but, you know, they say like certain seasonings are like a little goes a long way. And it's like just those shots of the future was enough to give the vibe to make it scary and eerie. And we're good. Yeah, and uh, I, I think those scenes in the future, just in, in my opinion, probably they're well done, but they probably age the worst, you know? And maybe there's a sense of that. It's like you don't want to spend too much time in the future because eventually it will be 2029. And is that going to be 2029 or is that futurist? Is is that viable? And um, I think you're right, Rich. It's like just a little bit's enough. You get a flavor of it. Um, but But let's get back to like the meat of the story. Yeah, the characters we care about and stuff. I mean, I know that there was, like, in the script at one point, like, early on there was a scene of, like, where you saw the time machine and you saw them, you know, either, you know, commandeering it or sending someone mm. back in there. Um, and, and I'm glad that stuff is not in the movie. I think it would be interesting to see. But almost like the conception, like, I, no matter what time machine you put on screen, I, I think it would somehow not live up to your imagination of just wondering what this is and how it works. Yeah. Yep. Are, are you speaking from experience after watching the sequels? Do you see it in the sequels? I don't know if you even see it in the sequel. You might. I, I never saw anything past Salvation. I didn't see Genesis. I didn't see uh, oh, okay. Dark Dark Fate or whatever it was called. Yeah, it played a big part in the in Genesis. Okay, and is it disappointing? I, you know, it's 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 normal sci-fi. You know, it's, it's like, not. Yeah, it's not mind blowing. It's a glowing thing, right? Yeah. yeah, it's a place they stand, and you know, it's round and. They just go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, 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 they sort of like imply that this is the time travel is extremely hard to do because like, why not send an army after Sarah Connor? Right. Sure. It's like, we can only send one, you know, you know, we, and, it, and I guess they can do it two more times into the past, right. With Terminator three. Yeah. So yeah, it definitely implies that there's like a cost or it's very difficult or maybe they just don't want to, I would be very leery of mucking up the timeline that leads to our your existence. So, sure. Uh, and and we'll talk about the causality problems in this movie. That's the one part where it's kind of like time travel's tricky to write. Um, anyway, yeah. but let's uh, let's go on with the movie. So we we get to our next opening, which is the appearance of the T eight hundred Arnold Schwarzenegger as he reappears naked, just like he did in the first movie. Yeah, uh, I need your and clothes, goes and your gets boots, clothes. and your motorcycle. <laughs> uh, before we go too far, has anyone listened to any Austrian Death Machine? No. <laughs> this is a this is a thrash metal band whose shtick is that it's all Schwarzenegger based thrash metal. So they have a song called "I Need Your Clothes, Your Boots, and Your Motorcycle." Nice. Yeah, uh, it, it's a funny idea. I don't know if I want to listen to like four albums worth of it. But, nah, you know, I'm good. As a bit. 
yeah, this scene is like for considering Schwarzenegger doesn't kill anyone in the movie, it's kind of brutal. Like the dude who ends up on the like uh, grill on the grill, like Ugh. that always like stuck with me. Like, oh god, like that is the most horrific thing I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a good op- it's a good action scene. Yeah, it's it's a really good action scene. It reminds me of it's kind of like a taste of the first Terminator movie in a way. It's like because the ter- first Terminator movie is actually pretty brutal. Obviously, Arnold Schwarzenegger's playing this really brutal assassin and uh you get a little taste of that i think in that that first scene which is kind of cool and before he becomes you know lovable uh pet for uh john connor yeah i'm i'm a little torn about the like the bad to the bone stuff because it's funny um that song was overused even then but my main problem with it is do how do we feel about this because sarah connor's narration sets up you know two ter- two terminators are coming we don't know which one is going to get to john's first and based on if you went into this blind, you would assume that Schwarzenegger is once again the bad one. But I feel like the comedic beat kind of undercuts that. And we already know, oh, he's probably the one that's there to protect John Connor this time. So I, do you think that helps the movie or is it does it not matter? I never thought about it before just this moment. But, uh, yeah, I guess uh, I, I, I don't know. I have no thoughts. Ken, what do you got? I, I, I kind of wanted to throw this back at you guys because, you know, me being young, watching all those commercials, you know, waiting to see Terminator 2 someday, they made it very apparent that Arnold Schwarzenegger was the hero. Like, he wasn't the villain. And so I finally watched the movie, and it was cool. It was well executed. But I'm like, oh, would this have been more awesome if I didn't know, you know, that he was going to be a good guy this time? And yeah. so I don't know. So that's a really good point, Doug, that – uh you know, this cue uh, might have kind of killed that tension. I mean, we're going to find out pretty soon anyway. Um, But I've talked to people who, you know, have not seen Terminator one at all. And I, you know, I remember having this conversation with somebody that might've been even been uh, my wife, Amy, uh, who was like, wait, he's the bad guy in the first one. And was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's the, that's the point. Yeah. Um, So, uh, all right. But then I believe the next thing that happens is we get the appearance of the T 1000, naked coming through uh who you know he's a cop approaches him and then we don't exactly see what happens but he is now dressed as a cop hops in a car and looks up john connor yeah and that's going to be his outfit pretty much through the movie i was going to return to it i will say you know as we were just talking about oh do you know do they not let us know that schwarzenegger is the good one and and uh and uh, robert patrick is, is the bad one the way they shoot Robert Patrick and his like icy cold stare, like you would know he's the bad guy immediately. Like yeah. they could have made it like, oh, he's a he's a cop. He's gonna you know be to serve and protect or whatever as they show on the car. But like, yeah, they make it pretty clear like he's he's fucking terrifying in this movie. Yeah, yeah, they both play the hell out of being machines. Yeah, like just the like physical aspect of their performances, like sells that they are machines. Yeah, I know Robert Patrick really was just such a great casting choice. And I think before this, he had a very small role in Die Hard 2, just a very mm-hmm. small role. And then all of a sudden he has this role and uh, yeah, incredible. Uh, I think scarier than Arnold Schwarzenegger in the first movie, like yeah. a, a nightmare inducing, I think, especially if you're younger. Uh, well, his, Oh, go ahead. I was say his abilities are so, you know, far beyond, you know, just his arms turning into, you know, these giant blades and stuff and or he, that he can, you know, shapeshift into someone you trust like that stuff makes him scary. But like two two other little factoids about him. 
yeah, he was living in his car when he got cast for this movie. So, wow, you know, huge, huge uh, boon for his career. The other thing in terms of like machine and like acting work that I saw that he worked with a coach to be able to sprint without like breathing. You know, like there's like when he's like running and like booking it later in the movie, like at full speed, like you get that sense of like, yeah, his arms and legs are moving, but he's not human. He's not huffing and puffing. He's not, you know, none of that. Like subtle acting. Yeah, it's like subtle and really good. Uh, Oh, one more factoid about this scene uh, when he first appears. So the shtick in the first movie is like, why don't they just send back a robot? Part of it is it would be conspicuous. But the other thing they do is like they come through naked and James Cameron had this idea of like, well, only organic matter can time travel. So you have to coat the machine in organic matter. And at one point there was an idea that, well, since you know, the, the T-1000 looks like human skin, but it's not human skin, it's just mimicking that, that he would appear in the time machine inside like a giant ball of flesh, uh, which would be really like upsetting to watch, but I, I'm kind of glad they just kept it simple and said, no, no, he just appears. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I I love it when they go, you know, we don't need to be that tight of storytelling. <laughs> like, we can just let something slide. Yeah. Totally. totally. But it's it's amazing, though, that he's thinking that, right? Like, it, that, that means he's just really deep into the world and he's yeah. uh, thinking about everything, so. Careful yeah. storyteller, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we get our introduction to uh, John Connor, I believe, who's robbing an ATM with this little device that uh, I don't have no idea if there's any realism to that or not. And he's with his buddy, uh, Bobby Budnick from Salute Your Shorts. Please insert your stolen card now. Will you hurry up? This is taking too long. Go, baby, go, baby, go, baby. All right. Pin number. Who'd you learn this stuff from anyway? From my mom. My real mom, I mean. Um, Withdraw three zero zero bucks. Come on, baby. Come on. Come on. Come on. Yes. Hey, it worked. All right. Easy money. Come on. Yeah, they they really want to make make us believe that he's like you know bad kid. He's up to no good, which is interesting because you know he's the hero of the movie. We're supposed to be sympathetic to him, but like they start out with like not really, right? Um, though it's cool, you know. I remember watching that going like even years later, going, "Can you do that? Can you yeah. do that with an ATM machine? That's that's amazing." Um, and so they're doing bad stuff, but but it's like cutting edge cool. Oh yeah, easy money. And it's a nice little plot, easy money. It's a nice little plot touchstone as well, because we know that ultimately John Connor will grow up to not hacking an ATM, but reprogramming the T-800 that's coming to save him. So I do like that little bit of like tight storytelling through that. But they're also, again, really efficiently giving you exposition to what his upbringing has been like, that he's in a foster home because his mom is fucking nuts because who wouldn't be after the first movie? Sure. Uh, I love that. They they just they set you right up for, you know, everything you need to know about him and Sarah. And like, yeah, he of course, he would be a troubled kid. Like he's had an extremely weird youth. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally understandable. What do you think of Edward Furlong? I love him in this movie. I think he's he's got a really tough acting job in it. And I think, you know, he's got a he's what, 13 when he made it. And he's got to support a two and a half hour 
epic $102 million movie, you know, is obviously a lot of that's on Schwarzenegger, but I mean, this kid's got to be good or else this movie's not going to work. And he nailed it. Yeah, I always thought that was interesting because he really did nail it. And he wasn't like, I don't know how to describe it, like looking at myself and like other people, he wasn't like this like tough boy, masculine kid. It's almost, he was almost kind of androgynous in a way and um, maybe perhaps more universal. So like you, uh, anyone, any kid could watch and relate to John Connor. You know, I know some of the sequels, they depict John Connor grown up and he's really this sort of like, you know, tough guy. Yeah, it's Christian Bale. Yeah. Yeah. Christian Bale. And I forget who plays him in Genesis and, you know, and those didn't seem to match this portrayal. It's sort of, he was sort of like an every kid, you know, he didn't lean too hard into, you know, being like tough or into like boy, boyish tropes or anything like that. You know, I've got two kids and I, I can't remember who made this observation about having children, but as they get older, they get more independent, they get a little tougher, but they never, they don't stop, stop uh, quite being kids for a while. And there's this middle period where it's the, the sentiment is basically, fuck you, dad. Now tuck me into bed. <laughs> and I, I think that fits with this kid. Like he, you know, he wants to appear tough. He thinks he's tough and streetwise and to some extent he's more tough and streetwise than the average kid but when the shit hits the fan he's a little kid again like he's you know and yeah. understandably so he's up against something way more than anyone's equipped to handle let alone a, you know a 12 year old or whatever he is yeah in fact i couldn't figure out the math so if the first terminator's in 1984 which is when he's conceived then he's probably born in 1985. And what year is this taking place? 92. So he's, what, seven years old by then? I couldn't figure that out. It never worked out right for me. Another one of those things I would just encourage you to let that go. Yeah, <laughs> you're probably right. <laughs> uh, and then uh, is this where we get to meet Sarah in the yeah. Pescadero Mental Institute? Ooh, this what scene. A, Ooh. Man, is she good in this. It's, it's so different, obviously, from the performance in the first movie. But she is such a fucking amazing actress in this movie yeah heavyweight you know she's because she's playing the character but then the character is lying you know in her first and it's whew, it's it's layered and it's good so what do you think doctor i have shown improvement haven't i well sarah here's the problem i know how smart you are and i think you're just telling me what i want to hear I don't think you really believe what you're telling me today. I think if I put you in minimum security, you'll just try to escape again. You have to let me see my son. Please. Please. He's in great danger. He's naked without me. If I could just make a phone call. Afraid not. Not for a while. I don't see any choice but to recommend to the review board that you stay here for another six months. Models, 
citizens. Yeah, this is like one of the all-time best performances in any action movie in history. And, you know, I know we're entering an era of like a lot of strong uh, female lead roles. And I wish a lot would, a lot of those producers would look back to this role. I mean, my gosh, she is just as a character, so layered, kind of what we were talking about with John Connor, you know, really tough on the outside, but really vulnerable. I mean, and just going between lying and trying to deceive. And uh, of course, she got herself into such incredible shape for the movie too. everything about this performance is just she lives and breathes this character. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and like you said, right, she has to be constantly deceiving the, uh, was it Dr. Silverman or whatever, Silverman, um, coming back from the first movie. And I think he appears in the third one as well. They find a way to work him in. Um, him and the guy who, like, runs the Mental Institute and Silence of the Lamb should go have a beers together. Like, they're, they're kind of two peas in a pod. But, like... You know, you can feel like the pain in her performance where she's like, she just wants to see her son. And she knows in order to see John, she has to put up a good front that she's not crazy. But at the same time, she knows they're probably never really going to let her out no matter what she does. And she also is burdened with the knowledge of like, she not only does she know the judgment day is coming, she knows the date. You yeah. know, she knows exactly when it's happening and she's running out of time. Yeah. And it's, I don't know if they were trying to make this point, but it's very much like, oh, she's just a crazy woman. We're not going to listen to her, you know, kind of thing, which it was kind of a take on the whole mental health institutions, which unfortunately still have that kind of mentality sometimes. But like, oh, yep, you just must be crazy. We're just going to label you as that, you know, big old slapdash crazy. Well, and on top of that, you add in like the literal abuse she suffers, like that dude, like later, you know, comes in and just licks her. While she's supposed no to be shit, catatonic, right? like, yeah, freaky. like they're, yeah, they they obviously are abusing, her. and she has to sort of put up with it to you know keep up this illusion that she's you know that she's fit for release, and um, yeah, but then you that that first scene of her just like she's just doing pull ups while people are making the rounds, and uh, yeah, yeah, incredible. Um, uh, so what happens after that? What's the next scene after that? Do we get we're in the mall? Oh no! We get to the the home. first. It's uh, John Connor's home life. Briefly, I was about to say his foster parents. The foster right? parents, and uh, he's he's barely there before he's off on his motorcycle to go to the Galleria. Yeah, it gives us just enough exposition to like, okay, we we kind of feel for these two, this couple, because they have this troubled kid, but they're also kind of assholes. <laughs> so it's like, it's an interesting character choice. Yeah, they're not the worst. They don't deserve what happens to them, obviously. No, you know, but. Uh, but you can see why John is bristling against them. Yeah, it's like they don't they don't care. Maybe they're getting like some subsidies or something like that for fostering kids, and they but they don't care about them, which is yeah, that's too bad for John. But you're right; they don't deserve what happens to. Them. Sure. Certainly, Wolfie doesn't deserve what happens to him. Poor Wolfie. Although he's not Wolfie, I forget what his real name is. Mm -hmm. Max. Max. Yeah. Uh, all right, so yeah, so he's off to the mall. We get T one thousand walking around asking, "Have you seen this boy?" His favorite thing to say. Uh, and then we're pretty much there. Like we're we're pretty much straight to the Galleria at this point for like the first big action sequence that is fairly long. Like I, this is one of the best action sequences in the movie, and it's like this is your introductory one. This this first confrontation between the T eight hundred and the T one thousand. And it's so good building the tension between the three points, right? You got 
furlong and then you got the t1000 you got the t800 and they're all kind of triangling in and i love the moment where his friend gets questioned and he goes uh you know no i think he's i've never seen him and you're like oh i barely know this kid but he's a good friend yeah i mean for all the world this is a cop and they just you know ripped off an atm like no shit there and they'd be in trouble if they got caught for that yeah 100 percent. and i you know we talked about robert patrick's performance i love it because it's like he's this lethal terminator but at this point he's newly in this environment and maybe he doesn't totally understand human behavior and he can't quite tell when someone's lying so they could kind of get away but you know it, it's like one of those things where that's his weakness right now is he's just very logically trying to get information, but he doesn't maybe understand when someone's trying to deceive him. Yeah. Oh, uh, we passed by one of the interesting uh, deleted scenes. I'll just briefly mention in the scene uh, with, with Sarah in the mental institution, they had a scene with Michael Bean who plays uh, Kyle Reese. Um, he appears to Sarah in a dream and like, oh. you know, she's really, she's feeling low and in the dream, she's, he's basically like buck up kiddo. And uh, it's a nice scene. I think it. I'm glad they excised it because it kind of undercuts the toughness that they're trying to build with her. Um, she's already doing enough to sell that, like you know, she's under duress and trying her best. So, yeah. Um, but it's nice to see Michael Bean again. It's nice to see him in anything. He always turns in a good performance. Oh yeah, he's just absolutely fantastic. I love that scene too. I agree. It's sort of like it's this amazing scene that, yeah, it's probably better not in the movie. It's it's one of those things. Like if you're a fan, you should watch it. It's amazing to see him. It's a great scene, but yeah, it might flow a little better. The movie flows a little better without it. Yeah, and I love the first confrontation that the Terminators have in that hallway, where you know it's like John's literally in between them, and Arnold pulls the guns out of the roses. Yes. <laughs> Um, which by the way, that, that was, that was in fact the reason why they use, uh, the guns and roses song earlier in the movie. I think somebody suggested, well, we have guns and roses. Let's do it. Cause I think somebody, Amazing. somebody else wanted, um, nine inch nails is head like a hole. And I'm like, that wouldn't fit. That's just not quite right. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Like, and then he fires the gun into the T-1000. We first watched that, like, you know, all those bullet wounds appear in the silver and then they <laughs> reconstitute. Like the first time you see that, like the immediate thought is, how are they ever going to kill this thing? And that that yeah. tension remains true through the entire runtime of, of the movie. Yeah, he's a great villain because he's so scary. <laughs> well, they make a robot from the future seem old fashioned, right? Like Arnold Arnold's Terminator is outmatched yeah. against this thing. Yeah, and the thing is, like, what I love about the scene and what you're describing is just like how there are all these wonderful storytelling teases where you see things like, you know, it's a Terminator. You don't know quite what he can do yet. Um, you assume he might be just like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but you, you see this happen. And you're like, what the hell is this? Like, this is different. You, but you don't understand it all. It's like, it's giving you information, but it's causing you to question what the hell's going on. And you're, you're just waiting for that answer. But like, what can he do? And, uh, how is he different? And I don't know, this movie is just full of that. I love, I love that storytelling. Yeah. And they deliberately went out of their way. They wanted to get someone whose like body type was kind of lithe and smaller than Arnold to, to give that of like, Oh, he doesn't appear like he's as big and strong as Arnold is as he, as much as Arnold is, but he's in fact much worse. Yeah. 
And is this, I think this is one they've done, they do this a couple times in the movies. This is where he gets slammed against a wall, you know, with it face first. And then his face comes through the back of his head and he quote unquote turns around that way. I, I think that's later. Is it later? Okay. I, that's one of my favorite effects in the movie when they do it. Cause it's so just like, Oh, of course he would do that. He doesn't have to spin around. He could just do that. Yeah. Uh, and then they, uh, yeah, they, they shoot him enough and a poor bystander just takes a bunch of bullets. Uh, yeah. and then they're off on the, into the parking garage and onto uh, into the motorcycle chase that leads into the freeway. And I love that. Like, uh, the way that the team with just commandeers that truck and the, the way that music, it's almost like the music from psycho. It's that really yeah. like shrill like over and over again. It's, um, uh, it, it's so pulse pounding for this. Yes, and do you, I, I need to jump in though. There that moment when before we get to that part, I will say it's a very strong memory of my family sitting around watching this movie, and they're seeing it for the first time, and uh, the T one thousand comes out, you know, and he's just walking, and then all of a sudden they start to pull away on the bike, and he just starts running after them. Like I remember audible gasps, like ah. Like people were really freaked out by the fact that he was just running after a motorcycle. And I don't know what effect they use to uh, make it appear as if he's running 60 miles an hour, but it, I believe it. Like it just, and it's perfect because it's, again, it's like, yeah, he can do that. He's not a human being, he's not constrained by human anatomy. So he, he can just book it. I mean, they could do something really silly and have his, like, you know, turn his, uh, you know, bottom half into a ball and just roll after him. But he, I guess he's still trying to maintain some illusion that he's human so as, so as not to draw too much interference. So I just watched a vignette uh, in preparation for this that I hadn't seen before. There was no effect. That was Robert Patrick running. And the first time they shot that, he caught Edward Furlong. <laughs> and the second time they shot it, he almost caught him but didn't. And that's what we see in the movie. Robert Patrick could run, he like could run faster than Tom Cruise can run kind of thing. Like it's crazy. <laughs> uh, that's high praise because Tom Cruise can run. I agree. But I mean, I'm telling you, he caught a motorcycle. <laughs> There's one other little shot I, I I passed over, which is that shot where they're in the, like the mall and he goes right by that silver mannequin and he looks at it for a second. Yeah. There's almost like a moment of like body horror of like, that's what he is under there. You know, it's, yeah. it's a nice little moment. Uh, so yeah, so we get this freeway chase, which it's kind of hard to describe in a podcast. So basically they're going through this, you know, um, they, they jump off the freeway into this river basin, uh, yeah. followed by this Mack truck. And I love that there's a couple of times they do this where this fake out of like, okay, we got away from him cause he can't possibly take the Mack truck in here. And then it comes bursting over the side because yeah. he don't give a fuck. He's indestructible. I feel this movie shot. went through. They went through more cars than the Blues Brothers in this movie. I mean, it's like so well, many cars and things bullets. get blown up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then they do it again because, like, they go under the 
the bridge and they're like, well, they can't, he can't follow through that. And he just blasts the top off of the cabin of the truck. Yeah. He keeps coming. Which is so, paralleled yeah. later in the helicopter and it's very similar chasing. Yeah. Uh, then they blow up the truck, they get away and, uh, did, did anyone else wonder if he was the tire that comes bouncing out? Like he had transformed into the tire. No, I never thought of that. That's That's interesting though. Because Arnold points the gun at the tires, like, but then nothing happens. Oh, that's why he does that. Okay. Yeah. I never thought, I mean, I've seen it a million times and never put that together until right now. Yeah. I guess the T-1000 would not be flammable and the tire is on fire. So that's the giveaway. Yeah. But uh, then we get our first, like, full CG shot of the movie as, like, he comes walking out of that uh, blaze in full silver mode and transforms back into Robert Patrick. And again, seamless, like, gorgeous CGI that just still works today. Yeah. The Silver Surfer movie came out like 14 years later or something, and its CGI is worse than Terminator 2 in 1991. <laughs> yes. 100%. It's, and I just want to stress here, I know we have seen so many, so many movies with special effects. I mean, my God, what is it, 32 years later? Um, I cannot overstate how mind-blowing that was to yeah. see in 1991 no one had ever seen anything like that before that was mind-blowing yeah and again sort of going back to our point earlier about you know how you know um how they kind of picked and chose exactly when to use it like i find that shot just as impactful now as i did then even though i've seen obviously far superior crazier special effects even from james cameron sure um but like, there's something about him. It's like it's Robert Patrick in this performance as him when he walks out, and it's like, fuck, he's still alive. There's nothing yeah. we can do. Yeah, now he, as we've said before, and and is worth saying again, Robert Patrick played the shit out of that role. Uh, so I believe this leads to our first kind of like bonding scene between Terminator and uh, and John Connor by this phone booth. As you know, he starts finally asking him, okay, what the hell is going on? Who are you? You know, why are you doing this? And we get our explanation and we get the, you know, the, the first inkling that, oh, he takes orders from John with that, you know, why, why did you stop? Because you told me to. Yeah. <laughs> See, we spent a lot of time in Nicaragua and places like that. For a while there, she was with this crazy ex-green beret guy. Running guns. Then there were some other guys. She'd shack up with anybody she can learn from so she could teach me how to be this great military leader. Then she gets busted. I'm like, sorry, kid, your mom's a psycho, didn't you know? It's like everything I've been brought to believe was all made of bullshit. I hated her for that. But everything she said was true. She knew. And nobody believed her. Not even me. Listen, we gotta get her out of there. Negative. The T-1000's highest probability for success now will be to copy Sarah Connor and to wait for you to make contact with her. Great. What happens to her? Typically, the subject being copied is terminated. Shit, why did you tell me? We gotta go right now! Negative. It's not a mission priority. You will fuck you! She's a priority to me! Hey, goddammit, what's your problem? Goddammit! Ha! 
Help! This does not help our mission. Help! Get this psycho off of me! Help! Help! Help me! Get out! Get the psycho off of me! Let me go! Why the hell did you do that? Because you told me to. I love I love Schwarzenegger's delivery as the Terminator because uh, he he acted the shit out of this role too. But like because you told me to, you know, it's like there's it's funny with no, just because it's so robotic. It is, but also like it feeds into this longer arc that we'll get into throughout the movies. He does become more human as the movie goes on, and like I think Schwarzenegger does a great job of like playing that subtle character growth. Like yeah, as you said here, he's extremely robotic. Yeah. And kind of terse in his answers. And, um, you know, the way he, like, menaces these dudes that come up uh, to, you know, help John yeah. at first. And then John, like, starts, you know, giving him some shit. And then he, you know, Terminator follows orders. So he's like, okay, I'm going to kill this guy. And finally John is saying, no, don't kill him. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like this scene a lot. It does a lot of work. And then, of course, we find out your foster parents are dead. Yeah, that's that's a really cool scene. It's such a good misdirect, you know, with having her on the phone. And it's so smart of, you know, the Terminator to go like, okay, what's the dog's name? You know, ask it something that only they would know, right? Uh, there's an extended version of the sequence where I think you see uh, Robert Patrick kill the dog. Mm. And Robert Patrick was not happy about that because I guess he's a real animal lover. But I'm glad it's not the movie. That would be too mean. Like, I know we hate the T-1000. That's too, that's too much. Yeah, um, I, I did like how that was kind of another mini callback to the first Terminator movie. You know, like they set up all this lore, interesting lore regarding the Terminators in the first movie. And, you know, the fact that dogs got upset and agitated and were barking at Terminators. That's one way you could tell it's a Terminator. And so if you've seen the first one, that's kind of a nice little callback. If you haven't seen it, it doesn't matter, you know. Yeah, And I love that John's first inkling that something's wrong is that they're never this nice. You know, some. Uh, yeah, and then that, but the the practical effect of you know, I love that she just puts her arm out, and you hear this like thunk, and you don't know what it is until they cut back, and her arm is like morphed halfway up into a blade that's right through Xander Berkeley's mouth, like yeah. incredible looking shot. It's it's so well done artistically with you know it's through the milk container that he's holding and through his skull. It's just like it's I mean it's macabre, but it's kind of beautiful. I know. And that's that's the other thing with this movie. It's like you have those scenes of gore that are spectacular and like well done. And uh, they're shocking. I don't know. How would you how would you guys describe them? They're like shocking, but they're not unbearable. Like uh, they're not too scary. I don't know. It's just yeah, they're, I think they're kind of clean wounds, which kind of reflects the way the T-1000 operates. So, and, and they never linger on it. It's just, just long enough to let you go, oh, God, and then it's over, right? They don't kind of go back to it. Yeah, so, it, it fits yeah. the story, right? Like some movies, they put in a lot of gore and blood, and it's like, oh, this just feels extraneous. And uh, some, you know, are trying PG-13, so there's no blood, and it feels ridiculous. And this movie just is like, this is the right amount of blood that we need for this story. Yeah. It never, it never intrudes into the realism. Like uh, I watched Renfield last night, which is like, it's like kick-ass levels of, you know, mm. blood and guts for, you know, because that's fun. And, you know, we cartoons, this is going yeah. for something much heftier 
uh, in terms of its, you know, it, they want this to feel, you know, ominous and imposing and real in a way that those movies do not. So I think they handle the gore. You know, they, it's correctly calibrated. I'll put it that way. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Uh, so they're dead. Uh, and then they, John says, we have to go rescue my mom. And I love that the T-800 is immediately like, no, we can't do that. That's the next place that the T-1000 is going to come and look for you. And he says, I don't care. I order you. We're going. And off they go to the Pescadero State Mental Institution where Sarah is staging her own escape that very night. Yeah, again, you've got this triangle coming, right? You've got Sarah, T-1000, T-800, and John. And they're all converging on a point just like at the mall. (laughs) And it's just a really cool way of setting up the tension for the action scene. Yeah. And I don't know if this comes in here or in the first chunk where we watch Sarah, but I love that scene that we see. It's only in a videotape of her freaking out, basically you know, telling you, know, you and everyone, you know, they're all dead that, you know, I have this dream where there's a bomb that goes off and they all fly apart, like leaves, like all that stuff um, is like just watching her come unglued is uh just again like she's just magnetic every time she's on screen yeah so many layers uh an incredible performance i think you know if we saw this when we were young in fact a lot of people watching this probably they're so absorbed in the movie they don't even realize how great an acting job she's just doing because they just buy it i mean she's the one who sells the peril of this entire movie and the fact that a mother is acting like this and um, yeah, I don't want to get too far ahead because we're going to get to it soon. But yeah, she just amazing, amazing work. Yeah. Uh, and so she uh, sneaks, a, you know, the little, um, I don't even call this thing, but a piece of a pen uh, in her mouth after this guy licks her. She spits it out. She uses it to uh, uh, get off out of her handcuffs. She opens the door. She whacks the shit out of this guy, yeah. knocks him unconscious, and she's off and running. And I love like the way she kind of tucks that billy club under her arm that's just like, yeah, I've done this a million times. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, slide aside, but I always felt like there's there's probably fan fiction out there that does this, but like if her and Ripley went on adventures together, like that would be a really cool like fan fiction kind of sci-fi. In the James Cameron verse? Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, she definitely owes a debt to Ellen Ripley, especially this version of the character, not so much in the first movie, but... yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think all female action heroes probably do owe a to uh, Sigourney Weaver. 100%. Uh, and yeah, and like you said, the, the characters all converge now. We get the T-1000 is you know sneaking in via uh, checkerboard floor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And which is because I, I think by this point, Schwarzenegger has already told us he can, you know, he's, he's a mimetic poly alloy, which was apparently <laughs> very hard for him to say. But basically, he's anything he samples by physical contact, he can... Uh, he can replicate. He cannot make complicated machines. That's saved for Terminator Three. But he can make uh, you know knives and stabbing weapons and things like that. Um, and uh, yeah, I love that scene of him as the floor as he rises Ooh. up and transforms into this security guard who's there getting a cup of coffee. Uh, and then that he turns around and it's him himself standing there and he he does his little evil finger point that goes you know, yeah turns into a pole that goes straight through his head. That actor, those actually are twins. So they didn't have to special effect that one part. <laughs> that's not the... Well, th- that trick gets used in a deleted scene as well. Uh, I was going to save that for later. But yeah, there's a deleted scene with Sarah Connor 
later where it turns out uh, Linda Hamilton also has an identical twin and they used her for some trick shots. Ah. Uh, so it's, you know, I, I love that shit. That's why I love like a lot of the special effects in Lord of the Rings where it's just like, oh, you think this is some Hollywood wizardry, but in fact, this is some technique that's been used since silent movies yeah, to, yeah. to fool you. And that's the most classic, like, oh, yeah, it's just a second person. They just have an identical twin. That's how we do yeah. it. He's using a double. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Marco Kine. Yeah. Uh, Ken, how'd this effect hit? You were talking about the other effect just, like, blowing your mind. I, I, this one did, too. I, like, I'll be honest, like, the first time, like, five times I watched this, I looked forward to every single instance of the CG T-1000. Just because, like, every moment was just like, whoa, it was so crazy. And so this one was, you know, the idea that this floor was, like, morphing up and then turning into the T-1000. Like, yeah, it just blew my mind. Yeah. And I think, again, like, these moments still work and hold up, not only because visually they look good, but because of the terror that they build into this character. Like, the um, you're with the audience you're feeling emotionally invested in what's happening with the CG character. So that kind of makes it feel special in a way that just watching, you know, a bunch of superheroes punch each other in front of a green screen might leave you cold. Like, I think this is still like, you know, super just evocative and scary. You know, I mean, he just, there's no other word for it. He's just, you know, one of the scariest slasher villains that's ever been. Absolutely. Uh, and then we get Arnold and John, um, I'm going to keep calling him Arnold because they're both Terminators and it's hard to keep track of like 800. But uh, yeah, I love that. this is a great moment where, um, you know, he's like, you can't kill anybody. So he walks up to the guard and just shoots him in the knees and goes, he'll live. He'll live. Yeah. Why do we stop now? No, you got to promise me you're not going to kill anyone, right? Right. Swear. What? Just put up your hand and say, I swear I won't kill anyone. I swear I will not kill anyone. All right, let's go. Visiting hours is 10 to 4, Monday through Friday. What the hell are you doing? You son of a bitch! You shot me! live uh, it's apparently it's not easy to pull off little points of real humor in a movie this dark and particularly at the time there were not many examples of it and i think you gotta give cameron his due for like really understanding comedy enough to go this is enough you know and i'm not doing too much and i'm putting it in the right moments yeah, you got to lighten it here and there. And I mean, it's an action movie and it's one where Arnold has re- he's a guy known for just tossing off a million one liners. He doesn't have one liners in this movie because the T1 T800 is not capable of making one liners. So he has to be funny in his deadpan delivery and kind of how obtuse he is to human humanity. And it works. Um, this was something that Schwarzenegger wanted in the movie because he said, well, I don't get to kill anybody. You know, I'm I'm the Terminator, but I don't kill anybody. And he's like, well, okay, we'll let you shoot this guy in the knees. And uh, apparently his instructions to, to Cameron was just make me look cool. And, uh, you know, mission accomplished, obviously. Yeah. 
And uh, so now we get the confrontation at the mental institute. Where, and and uh, my favorite part, so Sarah, like, holding the needle up to Silverman's neck, all of that stuff is su- – like, the, the tension just keeps ratcheting up and up and up because as while this is going on, we know the Terminators are both converging on her. And then we get to that great moment where they do. Like, uh, there's so much good stuff that happens in that, like, 90 seconds when they're running down to the elevator, when they see Arnold – uh, the appearance of the T-1000, like all of it. I'll, I'll let you guys talk, but I, this is one of my favorite parts in the entire movie. I just have to say, this is one of the reasons I love, you know, we talk we talk about great filmmakers. James Cameron is a great filmmaker. He is full of visionary ideas. And I think this sequence, even just Sarah Connor, starting with Sarah Connor, just jabbing that thing into the guy's throat. It can be as basic as that. That's something I don't think we've ever really seen in a huge movie before. At least to me, that was the first time I had ever seen an image like that. It was basically like liquid plumber up to the guys in the guy's throat. He just comes up with these ideas that are just so engrossing that I don't think anyone's really constructed before. Like he's not really ripping anyone off. Like these are new, fresh ideas He's creating a world and then we're watching how everything plays out and it just makes sense. And he's using all of the tools of filmmaking. And, you know, we talked about the special effects. He's just pushing everything forward uh, into sort of a new frontier of storytelling. And this whole sequence where our mouths are hanging open. And I love watching this entire sequence because it's it's full of that. You know, it's got all the hallmarks, all the tension of, um, you know, some horror filmmaking, but uh, science fiction. But just the imagination here is just incredible. And the emotional roller coaster that goes through this. Is, right. So she's, you know, she she escapes from Silverman and she's running down the hallway. The elevator opens and John and the Terminator steps out and she sees this thing that had tried to kill her in the first movie. And she reacts to it like all of a sudden all of the badassery is gone. just see that terror on her face of seeing this thing again, followed by John, you know, running out going, no, it's, you know, it's okay. She starts running back the other way. And we see the T-1000 approach. And this is when I believe he goes through the bars. And I, there's, and even then there's little touch, right? He goes through the bars, but his gun catches. He has to like adjust it. The cigarette or whatever it is drops out of Silberman's mouth. Cause finally he's like, oh shit, it was all real. 
you know, all of these little moments are just like built on top of each other. And that's why I love this sequence so much. There's so much complexity crammed into this tiny span of time. Yeah. Uh, you, you both said it all, but I'll say one thing is that uh, we're talking about female action heroes and how, you know, there's this like invulnerability that sometimes happens in uh, the current day storytelling. And like one reason why Linda Hamilton is so good in this is because we see her scared. We see her upset. We see the full, she's not just, you know, if they if they shot that sequence nowadays, she'd walk up and shoot Schwarzenegger in the head and she'd be like, you know, you can't mess with me or whatever. And it's like, no, we need to see her afraid. And she does such a good job. And it's kind of silent, a little bit slow motion in that moment. And it is, it is it just, your heart rips out for her. Yeah. And uh, I have to back you up. Rich, that's exactly how I feel when I'm watching this. It's just so genuine. She is so scared. It is one of the great moments, I think, in film history where a major character is scared. And um, it sets up the stakes of this entire movie. Uh, what could ha- what happened to her in the first movie, how t- how terrified she felt. It pays off this whole idea that she's gone crazy and is in this mental institution. Like you see what that core emotion is behind it that has caused all of her behavior up to this point. And um, I think you're right. I, I hope modern movies look back to this. It's okay to be vulnerable. And it makes us just empathize with the character so much more when we see that. We see those um, very human qualities. Yeah, because it's not she's not just playing afraid. It's like abject terror. It's you know yeah. it's profound like fear on her face. It's so you know, perfect. And again, that special effects shot again of the T one thousand walking through those bars. You know, a seemingly simple effect by modern standards, and yet like every time I watch that, I'm like, it feels real. I don't know how they did it, but if I saw a person do it, I would feel the way she feels. I would be shitting my pants. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so they race back to the elevator. The T-1000 is clawing at them, like, to try and open the door. He, he turns his arms into claws to open the door. Arnold fires a good shot at him that, like, rips him apart. It's the first one of those. Um, yeah. I love that. We didn't talk about that shotgun he has that, like, he reloads with this, like, circular motion. I don't know yeah. if that's a real thing or not. It seems highly impractical, but it looks badass. Yeah. I don't know if it's real, but I want one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, but then he's on top of the elevator. He's like, you know, just basically sending blades down oh. after them. He, and critically he hits Sarah with one of those. He, you know, he yeah. slices her, her first with, of oh. many injuries in this movie that, but also, you know, that's a plot bearing thing because later in the movie he's, because he sampled her by physical contact. That's why he's able to mimic her at the end of the movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, then again, we get another like into the parking garage. He's running after them again. And then he's like running in the street. And like I, there has to be a special effect to that. Because again, he looks like he's running at 60 miles an hour. I mean, all I know is apparently Robert Patrick watching the scene is like, yeah, that's me running. So I don't know. Robert Patrick is the special effects. There he is. Yeah. Uh, and they, yeah, he, again, he's still clawing at them. They blow the claw off. And I love that, like, John, the way John, like, kind of takes the little bit of it that's left, like, gingerly touches it and goes, like, <laughs> you know, because um, it could, like, in theory, I don't know if, how much of it itself it retains. Like, that could bust out and, like, rip his hand. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's something I've kind of wondered since. It's like, could you have a Terminator like the T-1000 that could split into multiple Terminators? Like, that's kind yeah. of, like, an interesting idea. Like, could it... Well, would it, wouldn't be half the mass though. You know, two little tiny ones. Right. Or you could just yeah. start with a bigger one. 
I guess he could hollow himself out. But oh, that's a good point too. Yeah. Uh, and now we have our trip to Mexico. Yeah. To, like kind of regroup. Very interesting setting change. You know, we've been inside the hospital and the mall in the big city, and now we're going out into a desert area that, you know, isn't the future, but kind of feels like almost post-apocalyptic. Well, there's like a busted out, you know, a burned out husk of a helicopter that they're hanging around. And we meet Enrique, who's just basically a gun depot. Um, but this is where we get a lot of the thematic stuff starting to happen. One, we get Terminator recounting the history of Skynet and the war. I need to know how Skynet gets built. Who's responsible? The main most directly responsible is Miles Bennett Dyson. Who is that? He's the director of special projects at Cyberdyne Systems Corporation. Why him? In a few months, he creates a revolutionary type of microprocessor. Go on. Then what? In three years, Cyberdyne will become the largest supplier of military computer systems. All stealth bombers are upgraded with Cyberdyne computers becoming fully unmanned. Afterwards, they fly with a perfect operational record. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes. It launches its missiles against the targets in Russia. Why attack Russia? Aren't they friends now? Because Skynet knows that the Russian counterattack will eliminate its enemies over here. Jesus. You're not telling us anything we don't really know, but basically this machine becomes self-aware. And and let and oh, we did skip over one little scene, which is the reveal uh, at Cyberdyne, uh, and we our first meeting with Miles Dyson, where he's got oh, yeah. the hand and the chip from the first Terminator, and he's, he's oh, don't ask where it came from. You know, they just said don't yeah. don't ask, and that is allowing them to develop the technology that will lead to Skynet. Yeah, and we discover that he's working. He's he can't figure it out, but he's never going to give up. So it's like, well, damn it, sir, you really need to give up. Yeah, and we get this scene here. A couple of things. This is that deleted scene I mentioned with Linda Hamilton and her uh, twin where they power down the T-800 to reprogram him to allow him to learn more and become more human. They ended up not doing this because it was just easier to have him just say, yeah, I'm a learning computer. The more time I spend with humans, the more I learn. Shortcut it. But there was a moment in this deleted scene where Linda Hamilton's about to crush the CPU because she doesn't trust the thing. And John stops her. Um, it's an interesting scene. But, yeah, it's a little bit of like two steps forward, two steps back plot wise. So yeah. uh, I'm glad it's out. But that makes room for the more heady stuff here that we get about, you know, John talking about his dad a shot that lingers with me every time I watch is that scene of him watching these two kids playing with guns and he looks over the terminal and goes, we're not going to make it. Are we people? I mean, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. Yeah. Major drag, huh? Break it up for a ring. Both your necks. Come on. Do me. Give me a five. Watching John with the machine, it was suddenly so clear. The Terminator would never stop. It would never leave him. And it would never hurt him, never shout at him or get drunk and hit him or say it was too busy to spend time with him. It would always be there. 
and it would die to protect him. Of all the would-be fathers who came and went over the years, this thing, this machine, was the only one who measured up. In an insane world, it was the sanest choice. This is why I think this movie stands tall among other action movies, because it, it decides to go to these places. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, 100%. It's interesting, though, that he does say that. It's like, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. At the same time, in 2029, we see that humans are banding together. They are united to try to fight for their own survival. So it, it's it's almost showing like two different sides of humanity, um, one that could be self-destructive and one that could could somehow come back and, and fight for its own survival. Yeah. And uh, then we get uh, Sarah Connor's nightmare. Yeah. Whew. Became my uh, nightmare, which was probably why I was too young to watch it in the theaters. <laughs> yeah. And it's a simple shot. She's at she's at a playground. She's watching what I guess is like a three or four year old version of John playing on the playground when a nuclear bomb goes off and basically you watch everybody just get turned into a skeleton and fly apart like leaves, like she says. And yeah. uh, I, I think this is a Stan Winston joint in terms of the uh, special effects, I believe. And I think he said this was the most upsetting thing he ever worked on in his entire yeah. career of like working on like the thing like this is this is the most upsetting shot wow. he's ever done. You know, this probably at the time and since because I don't think a lot of movies go into what would happen in the event of a nuclear bomb going off. This is yeah. probably the most vivid depiction of that. And it's horrifying and uh I don't know if we've just kind of gotten beyond that cuz this was right at the end of the Cold War. Um, so obviously nukes are on people's minds, but you know, now we, we don't really see that nowadays. I know we have a new movie coming out Oppenheimer that deals with all that, but, um, you know, if you look at the scene, it's pretty faithful to what could happen if you happen to be around a nuclear explosion. Ooh. I think there's even some stock footage in there of like, you know, from these like nuclear towns, they would, you know, blow up, uh, you know, f you know, like atomic testing in the desert, uh, you wow. know, in the forties and fifties. And yeah, it just looks like, you know, it looks like an apocalypse. Like it's, it's, you know, real scary. Um, and that is what gives Sarah the impetus to, you know, she's, she has to go kill Miles Dyson to stop this from happening. And she goes off on her own and carves no fate into a table uh, and goes rogue. Yeah. And then John finds it. No fate, but what we make. My father told her this. I mean, I made him memorize it up in the future as a message to her. Never mind. Now, okay. The whole thing goes. The future's not set. There's no fate but what we make for ourselves. She intends to change the future. Yeah, I guess. Oh, shit! Dyson. Yeah, gotta be. Miles Dyson! She's gonna blow him away! Come on, let's go! Come on, let's go, let's go, come on! And of course, let's go. Yep, no fate but what we make for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I, I like that the Terminator even like susses out that this is also a place for the T-1000 to go after. Because in theory, if they just kept running, you know, 
the team 1000 is going to run out of leads. It could be anywhere in the world. And, you know, yeah. they'd always be looking over their shoulder, but talk about it. It's a game of where's Waldo on the entire globe. It's never going to find them. Yeah. But they know that like, that's, that just saves them for a short time. You know, it's like this, it, it, it doesn't, this, I love the storytelling on this because this big plot of like, we're going to go on the offense feels extremely like makes sense. You know, and it doesn't doesn't feel like a turn. It feels like a point in the movie where it turns, but right along with the pace of the storytelling. Yeah, and and right here is where we kind of get the the kind of the nexus of like the the T one thousand or T eight hundred and Sarah Connor passing each other. He's becoming more human. She's becoming more robotic, and mm-hmm. she's the one who you know makes the observation of like, oh, you know, watching him teach uh, the Terminator to high five and stuff. You know, he's the father that. You know that John, the best father John could ever have, because he'll he'll do his only purpose is to protect him, and he will never stop, no matter what. And she, on the mean, in the meanwhile, is like, I'm just going to go kill this innocent civilian who has no idea that he's you know about to play a part in humanity's destruction. Yeah, and she like he loses his sunglasses, and she puts on sunglasses. Like there's a little like visual, like you know she she is becoming a Terminator herself. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because when I was younger, I kind of viewed that scene as kind of like this interesting, poignant observation that she was making about the Terminator, you know, becoming like a father figure. And I've gotten older and I've looked, I'm like, no, that's actually a really interesting way to describe her state of mind. The way that she would view this Terminator is actually like the best father John has ever had. And you kind of go, well, wait a minute, her her thought process might be turning a little bit and um, leading up to exactly what you're saying. It's like, she's kind of becoming Terminator ask herself. Yeah. And it's not clear why she decides to do this on their own, her own and not bring the T 800 to help her or, you know, uh, you know, Hey John, you stay here and hide the T 1000. will never find you. You guys come with me, but we get this home invasion sequence that is just absolutely nightmarish. Cause it's all from the Dyson's point of view. It's, uh, uh, Joe Morton, uh, who's, uh, he's an interesting actor. He's a very good actor, but if you ever watch him on scandal, it's like some of the most like scenery chewing shit you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's fucking like bonkers, Nicholas cage level stuff. Uh, and then Essipatha Murkerson is uh, from law and order is his wife. But this whole sequence of her, like firing a machine gun into their home, it's like even more frightening in 2023 to watch it than it is here. Yeah. Yeah, you, you get that sense that um, I, I don't know. Do, I, do you guys get the sense that watching this movie is such a classic movie that there are things in this movie that wouldn't be done today necessarily? Like you wouldn't see certain scenes play out in a modern movie the way you see them play out in Terminator 2. I feel like this one's almost too domestically terrifying uh, in a way. I think they could still have the plot beat of her going to attack the home. And I think they would probably have the T-800 and John intercept her before it gets as bad as it does. Cause like, uh, cause Dyson like takes one in the shoulder and like, you got yeah. the scream, like the kids on the floor, he's like screaming at his son, get down. Like it's like, it's all played very real and absolutely again, terrifying to watch this character that we love subject these people to this because she knows in her heart, like it's, it's this or humanity. Yeah, way. and they did a good enough job with the earlier scenes to for this family to where we really feel for them, and we like, oh, they're good people. We like them. Like they they do not deserve this. Totally. Uh, 
And uh, but fortunately, she she ultimately stops herself. She is not willing to go far enough to actually. She can't bring herself to put the bullet in his head. Uh, right when John and and the Terminator show up to deglove him, and uh, I feel like that was a little extreme. I don't think he had to take off his entire arm. I think one finger, you know, or just a, a open the slit a little bit, like to completely take off all of his arm was probably overkill because he has to grow that back. I know. I loved how John Connor. He's basically it's it's his idea. He just walks up with a knife. He's like, "Go ahead, show him." It's like, "Whoa, dude!" It's like, <laughs> like he I, that was his idea. Okay. You know, uh, but yeah, pretty shocking. He follows orders. And yeah, I, he probably didn't need the whole thing, but it was a really cool shot. I mean, it's better than having him like step on a bathroom scale and shows that he actually weighs like 900 pounds because he's made of metal, you know, sure. something like that. Um, but is that the, again, talk about a great practical effect. Like uh, it just looks like he's realistically just, yeah, just ripping my skin off like I do. Um, yeah. It's yeah, so visceral. Uh, and then they have their discussion about causality and like can they can they stop judgment day dyson listened while the terminator laid it all down skynet judgment day the history of things to come it's not every day that you find out you're responsible for three billion deaths he took it pretty well i feel like i'm gonna throw up judging me on things I haven't even done yet. <laughs> How are we supposed to know? Yeah. Right. How are you supposed to know? Fucking men like you built the hydrogen bomb. Men like you thought it up. like to really create something to create a life feel it growing inside you all you know how to create is death and destruction mom we need to be a little more constructive here okay we still have to stop this from happening don't we but i thought aren't we changing things i mean right now changing the way it goes that's right there's no way i'm going to finish the new processor not now forget it out of it. I'll quit Cyberdyne tomorrow. That's not good enough. No one must follow your work. Right. Uh, I like this because this, this this actually is where you have to start thinking about, you know, hey, is this going to work? Can they stop it? No one asked the question of, hey, if we stop Judgment Day, doesn't John cease to exist? Because there's no reason to send Kyle Reese back in time to father him. But, um, yeah, I, I, it's just... It's this nice, like, nice moment of them, like, after all of this terror, like, the Dysons, like, immediately, once they see that, the arm, it's like, yep, I believe in time travel, I believe in Judgment Day, I'm on board with everything that's happening, I believe it. Yeah. And now we're all a team. Yeah, uh, and so then we uh, we get our drive in um, the, the, this great shot of the road at night, which is going to be you know, they're going to call back to at the end and, and Sarah Connor actually saying, Hey, for the first time, you know, I don't know if judgment day is going to happen. I don't know how it's going to go. You know, we're re we're now writing the future as we, as we do this. 
as we uh, pull up to Cyberdyne yeah. for another amazing action sequence. Like just a, I mean, basically, this is the action sequence that will take us all the way to the end of the movie because once they infiltrate Cyberdyne, it, it's full throttle all the way until the death of the T-1000. And another, you know, this is you know, so many times in this movie where you go, oh, man, the Matrix really benefited from this movie. Uh, I feel like this sequence is, especially this building with all the cops, everything is absolutely one of them. Yeah, this whole thing from start to, again, the end of the Team 1000, arguably one of the finest action sequences ever put on film. It's so well paced. You can all you always know exactly what's happening with the action, you're you're never confused about who's where and and what they're doing. So just from a filmmaking standpoint, it's so cleanly done and so easy to follow. Like the only thing I can think of that comes close is maybe like the Helm's Deep battle from Two Towers, like another like way 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 high up there action sequence. But this is so laser focused. It's so good. Just from the moment they they walk it, like Dyson walks in there, and immediately the security guard is like, something's up. Yeah, yeah. It just I totally agree. An amazing sequence. Um and what's interesting is this is coming from the eighties, right? So the eighties action movies featured lots of guns and explosions and sometimes they could be mind numbing and boring. What is absolutely amazing about this is this is this features guns, explosions, everything, and it's never boring. I think for all those reasons you touched just talked about, Doug, it's like it's so engrossing when these types of scenes had been done so many times before but it's just on a whole nother level um yeah it's 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 well done explosions i was gonna say in that moment where dyson's holding the 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 trigger that is (laughs) so powerful i don't know how much longer i can hold this I mean, and even before we get there, because I do want to spend some time on on his death, which is, again, mind-blowing. I love the way they keep ratcheting up the stakes of like, okay, first it's a, you know, it's a heist mission, right? We got to get in there. But fairly quickly on, the SWAT team is called. Like, all right, now we've got 100 cops outside versus one Terminator, one Sarah Connor, a kid, and, uh, you know, a scientist. Injured scientist. (laughs) An injured scientist, Yeah. And so they're putting all the explosives around because, you know, as they said, like, we have to make sure nothing survives this. You know, no one can follow in in the the work that we've done. So we have to destroy every computer, everything, every single thing that's in here. And uh, you get the return of the ATM device The you know, John pulls that off to so they can help get into whatever the server room is or wherever they need to go. And he grabs at some point the arm and the CPU of the original Terminator. So that goes into John's backpack. And I love that sequence where uh, first, first, of course, we get Arnold's catchphrase because we have to. Yeah. Shut your eyes. Stay here. I'll be back. 
But after I'll be back, you know, that's fine. The sequence of him, you know, because John pleads with him, you know, you can't kill anybody. And he just says, trust me. That's all cool. But then actually watching him execute on that, it makes him so much more badass because of the precision required to basically expel all of this SWAT team without harming a soul. It's so great. Yeah. Becomes a surgeon tactician at that point. Yeah. And that, I, that image of Arnold at the window with the minigun, like that's got to be one of the all-time iconic shots. Incredible. Yeah. yeah well, and, and the only one, of course, without a gas mask because the they put tear gas in there. And I just love – he's like, he doesn't need it. You know, he, he appears more fearsome because all of them – like, why doesn't he need it? You know, they don't know he's a robot. So it's just so great to watch him go to work basically – uh, and then, you know, I love that, like, the score, you just hear this, and we see some lights of a motorcycle, and like, ah, oh, fuck, he's back. Uh, and, and now we have, a, we have a Robert Patrick entering the fray. A new challenger approaches. Yeah, heightening. Which, actually, he had been gone from the movie for a while at this point. And so it's yeah. almost like he kind of, maybe kind of forgot about him a bit, and then, boom, he's back. Yeah, I love they wait. They could have like, it, you know, a lesser movie would have intercut to something like, oh, let's he's searching around for the Connors. He can't, he's trying to find something. You know, we, we would see what he's up to while they're in Mexico. And like, no, we just trust you, like, because it makes it so much more impactful when he shows up. Where it's like, oh, no, they have to deal with this, too, now. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, there's the moment where the cops, I guess, fire a bunch of bullets and they they take out Dyson and who is uh, he's gasping for that last breath trying to hold on as long as he can before he lets go of this trigger that will blow up half of Cyberdyne. Fun fact, the cop who runs up and like sees him and then tells everybody, you got to get back. Uh, that is Dean Norris from Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, it's Hank Schrader. Like, blink and you'll miss it. But the second you see him, you're like, I mean, that guy is a very distinctive look. So, you know, like, oh, it's, it's Uncle Hank. Very cool. But I love the uh, uh, Morton's choice to like gasp that way. It's so like, You've never seen that on a film before, someone you know, having that kind of the last gasp. No, that hit hard. Felt so bad for him. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's too bad. Like, you believed in what he was doing, and he felt like he had to do that. But, man, that's it's too bad it had to happen. Yeah. yeah. Sacrifices for the greater good. Unless you believe that the rest of the Terminator films are canon, in which case it did not do much. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, I I have some thoughts on Terminator Three. Um, but I actually like the I sort of like the ending, but I prefer the but I prefer the ending of this much much more. Um, and we're almost there, but yeah. So the T one thousand menaces them, catches up to them. They after they fend off all the cops, they they're on the run in this shitty truck. Yeah. Um, uh, while once again he's uh, got a a big rig. This time it's full of uh, as we know um, liquid nitrogen, and yeah. we have another freeway chase. Mm-hmm. More I car love, chases. Yeah. More car chases. I love that the like they keep emptying bullets into him, even though they know like not going to do much. Going to slow him down a little bit. I mean, you got you got to feel like you're in control somehow, right? <laughs> you, what is it? Uh, you grant me the serenity to change the things that I can change, and yeah, yeah, yeah. the things that I cannot. <laughs> yep. So yep. So the thing that they they can't change it, but they can unload bullets into him for you know, I guess for fun. But yeah, that scene where like Arnold 
like jumps onto the the big rig and like just unloads in him from close range and then you know jumps off and tumbles all this the poor guy on the side of the road you know yeah. <laughs> who the T one thousand kills like all again this whole sequence while there's like a helicopter above them yeah it's just they keep ratcheting up like you can't get it they've they've tempted fate one too many times because they've had all these opportunities where it's like the team when t800 is like don't go the, the t 1000 will catch up with you if you go here and they do it you know, don't do it you know, don't go to mom don't go to dyson and now you know here yes the, it's it's finally he's ne- that he will never let up from this chase and then we get the big tease that to make us think that they beat him and they did not yeah, this incredible shot where they they cause the big rig to explode uh, you know, as Arnold goes like tumbling off of it into the steel mill where the T-1000 gets a big wave of liquid nitrogen and freezes and then Arnold shoots him and he shatters. Hasta la vista, baby. I thought I thought he was dead too. I was like, "Oh, that's clever! They froze him and he, he blew into a million pieces." Yeah, well, a wonderful, wonderful way to do it. I mean, obviously, we're used to all the fire and explosions at this point, but you know, to actually freeze him and that whole sequence of him freezing and you know, quote dying, that was pretty freaky too. I mean, yeah. that was freaky to watch him like die. Yeah, it's amazing how much body horror that he can get out of a character that actually doesn't have a human body. It's just a blob of metal, but like freaky looking. Mm, yeah. Anytime they blow up his head or whatever, and it's like all spread out, like that's some good body horror. Fun fact about this shot. It's real liquid nitrogen. They, they, they wanted to try and come up with some way to fake it. And they said, there's just nothing else that behaves that way. Wow. So we just have to get a bunch of liquid nitrogen and just let it loose safely at the, you know a mannequin. Wow. More than a hundred and two uh, million dollar budget. <laughs> and then we get some more cool science because we get the liquid mercury blobs reforming themselves into the T one thousand. And that is again, it's actual they just use liquid mercury. It's not CG. They just had it, it is like, the you know, roll around. It is the eeriest moment in that movie for me, is watching that liquid just coagulate together bit by bit. And he goes, we don't have much time, or are we going to add her soon, or whatever he says. And I'm just like, oh, he's not dead. Yeah, I, I, for me, it's the sound design. We haven't talked much about the sound design of this movie, but it's obviously very mm. good. There's a lot, of, a lot of gunshots. But the, the sound of the T-1000 that he makes are the most interesting sounds to me in the movie. And here, there's one that's just like a lot of like plop sounds. as they like It's like this, like as they reconstitute. Yeah. 
uh, somehow they make that sound scary. Oh yeah. Well, you know, yeah, but, you know what's going to happen. You know what all those plops lead to. You know he's going right. to come back. Yeah, I mean, t- I mean, this is such a classic slasher movie thing of like you know Michael Myers or whatever. You know, he, t- he just he keeps on coming. He takes a lick and he keeps on ticking. This is, I think, the scariest version of that, right? Yeah. Because he's not human. I believe that he is invulnerable in this way. Whereas, like, you know, you stab Michael Myers enough times, like he's still flesh and blood, guys. You know, he should yeah. he should be dead by now. Um, and it's like, no, there there is n- almost nothing on earth that will stop this thing. Almost. Almost. But thankfully, they wandered into the set of an 80s music video because they're, st- <laughs> they're in a steel mill. I love this. I mean, we were talking about good sets earlier. Like, this is such an iconic way to end you know, the open vats of lava or whatever the hell it is. You know, the constant machines, the different stairs. You know, it's just like this setting... I don't know if they had to construct it or if it was a real factor of the years or whatever, but it's, I still think it was one of those iconic settings of like an action sequence in a movie. It is a real steel mill. It was out of use by the time they filmed it, but it's out in Fontana, California. Um, So yeah, so they, they took over. I mean, like I said, it was defunct so they could do whatever they wanted with it. But I again, it's also like drive something. It's a very mechanical setting, right? It fits this machine, the machine on machine action. And because um, we've seen a lot of like, I feel like a steel mill is a very you know, common place for an action sequence in some ways. I have, like there's that whole scene in RoboCop where they're at like a refinery or something. But this is it's more hellish because it's like a, it's you know everything is like bright red. You can tell how hot it is in there. Uh, you know, just a, a miserable place to be. And once again, we get a cat and mouse game between everybody, and the T eight hundred seemingly is completely destroyed. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And uh, to add on to that, one thing I love about this location is that it is where something like a, an advanced machine could be forged. It's almost like a birthplace for for mm-hmm. something that's crafted with metal. You know what I mean? And it's so yeah. it's it's got that birth aspect to it, but uh, also maybe the death aspect that we'll see later. It's like it's a great kind of alpha omega thing for uh, for these metal creatures. Yeah, and the fight between the two of them is so like I mean it is brutal. Like the, the I mean it's, it almost makes you believe that the T one thousand would have a personal grudge against Arnold yeah. at this point, even though it should be incapable of that. Because like he could he doesn't kill him efficiently. Like he might yeah. be able to. I mean it's a lot of just like beating him hard, and then he rams him through with that spike, you know, right through his torso, and you watch the light in his eye go out. And uh, yeah, it was just really intense. And then it's like, again, the tension goes up because now Sarah and John are on their own without an Arnold to help them. I know that the machines aren't supposed to feel joy, but I swear Robert Patrick puts a little bit of joy when he's killing Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, I mean, he push, puts the spike through him and he's kind of turning it or he's shoving that huge bit of steel into his head three or four times in a row. It's just like, it's like, I, I got, you're my bitch, you know. There's another deleted thing here that kind of a little plot thread that they, they dropped, which is the idea that the, the freezing and re- breaking up and reconstituting, it didn't kill him but it kind of messes with him and whatever, however his software works, because there's scenes of him like glitching a little bit after this. And this was meant to lead up to a scene where obviously 
there's two Sarah Connors and we got to figure out which one's the real one and which one's the T-1000. And there was going to be a slight glitch that let us know or, or lets John and the Terminator T-800 know which one's the real one. So there's shots that you can watch where like he puts his arm on like this black and yellow striped thing and suddenly it's like black and yellow all up his arm. Yeah, it's like he can't kind of, help but mimic it. Well, yeah, the idea that like he's he's he is vulnerable here. He's been slightly weakened in some way, which I'm glad they got rid of that because we want to believe all the way to the end that he is just there are no weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, and then we get to him. He's we've done we've seen him do his impressions before with the Foster family, uh, but now we hear you know what appears to be Sarah Connor's voice calling to John because they've split up. Yeah, and uh, we you know. I love the confrontation between him and her because he could kill her instantly, but he doesn't. He kind of like he puts that spike in her near her eye and call to John. Call to John. I know this hurts. Call John. Call to John now. Fuck you. I love this. It's so like it it's intimidating for him, but it makes her look like a badass because she's like she's not backing down. Nope. Do not mess with a mother. It's probably the most mama bear thing in the movie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just love this. Um, you, and then we cut back to what? The T-800 is waking back up? Yeah, alternate re- power source. Yeah, which is amazing. <laughs> After yeah. the sad, sad supposed death, we get, we, get, we get him to come back. Yeah. Yeah, and I love the way he comes back because now we're at a point where, like, you know, the T one thousand has John, or has Sarah, right? You know, basically at her throat, sort of like she did with the psychiatrist. John is there. You know, she he doesn't know what to do because he doesn't want her to die, and uh, Sarah what starts firing into him. I forget. He's like he's near the end of the ledge. And yeah, we're waiting for, but then she's out of bullets. Yep. And he recovers, and he's like, oh, you're dead now, until... He does the finger wag. He does the Sonic the Hedgehog, like, <laughs> finger wag. Yeah. Which is, like, even at this late stage in the movie, that's such a badass move for him to do. It's like, he keeps throwing out all these iconic things all the way up to his death. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And I lo- So it's like, yeah, again, all hope is lost, but then Arnold is like, he's riding a gear. I don't know what's happening. He's coming up and over the side of a thing. And he's got this gun that we've seen before that's like, it's like a grenade launcher, sort of. Yeah. And I love this. He fires it into the T-1000 and he blows up into this. Like, we've seen him blow up before, like a big hole in his head. This is some awesome, again, like John Carpenter's The Thing shit, where like he's in this yeah. giant like C shape with like his head and arm on one side. Like, fucking incredible, like practical effect of this thing. And then watching him scream and wail and turn into different faces in the lava or whatever it is, the molten steel, like that is, again, just ripping. Oh, 
I mean, again, great use of CGI, but also I want to call out like the sound design here because like this, this like the like it's the sound it makes in its death throes as it's swimming in the lava are incredible. And then that last shot of like its face turning inside out into its face again. I don't yeah. know how else to describe that. Like, per, like perfect character death. It's, you know, not since the Wicked Witch of the West has there been someone mel- <laughs> melted this good. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, he just joins the uh, the molten steel or whatever, just kind of just fades out into that. Yeah, incredible. Mm-hmm. And that scene where he goes through all the faces, I remember kids are talking about that forever. Like, it's just, just that idea of like dying, but going through all the faces he'd been before. Yeah, we talked about this, Rich, on a prior podcast because they pull that trick in uh, in Batman, uh, the animated series with Clayface. He does a similar yep. thing when when Batman defeats him. And like, there's something about this like shape shifting thing, like frantically, you know, basically flailing around trying to do something as it shape shifts into things we've seen before. Um, It's just again the the only word I can think of is evocative, but like it's you know this thing that's been so inhuman, like watching it, like anytime you have like something that thinks it's invulnerable, suddenly realize, oh shit, (laughs) I'm not invulnerable. Uh, I'm on board for that. It's so cool. Yeah. But then, you know, you think, oh, that's the end. And then there's one more big old rip your heart out of your chest moment. Go for it, Rich. You can talk about what happened. Uh, I can't self-terminate. There's one more chip. Points right to his head. And then John Connor puts it together. And we get another. This poor kid has been through hell his whole life. This whole movie. And finally, they get rid of the bad guy. And you think, oh, we we can just chill for a second. Nope. We gotta murder your father figure. (laughs) It's over. No. There's one more chip. And it must be destroyed also. Here. I cannot self-terminate. You must lower me into the steel. No. No. I'm sorry, no. John. I'm sorry. No, it'll be okay. Stay with us. It'll be okay. I have to go away. No, don't do it. Please, don't go. I must go away, John. No! No, wait, wait, you don't have to do this. Sorry. No, don't do it, don't go. It has to end here. I order you not to go. I order you not to go, I order you not to go. I know now why you cry. But it's something I can never do. And they pay off his like burgeoning humanity, right? He finally says, first of all, he does one thing that he says, I need the vacation, which is like, all right, we'll give you one. Arnold, the T-800 would never say it, but fuck it. It, You know, it's it's a funny line. It Um, it works. It it works. And then he says, yeah, I know now why you cry, but it's something I can never do. Um, Tin Man has a heart. Yeah. And then, you know, what's ironic is Sarah Connor, who did not trust this thing with good reason and wanted to kill it. 
then wanted it, then tolerated it, then sided with it, then appreciated it, now has to end it like she wanted to in the beginning. But you can see the like respect on her face. Like, she under you know, this thing has learned it's you know proven its worth and its loyalty, and you know by understanding also that it has to make the ultimate sacrifice for John and the future of humanity. Yeah, Ken, I'd love to hear your your take on this because this is kind of again this is the biggest emotional payload in the movie. Yeah, and I just really like how it was handled because we go through all those emotions. Uh, all what Richard's talking about, all the bonding that was built up. And then you get the slow descent down into the molten steel, you know, that, that kind of goodbye. And then he's going down and you hate to see him like he's, Oh no, he's burning up. But then yes, you got the thumbs up. And so it kind of gives you that kind of nice, warm feeling that it's okay. It was a good time. We'll miss you, but, but everything's going to be okay. You know, and so I, I just thought that was such a great, great moment. It's it puts a smile on your face and it just it makes everything just feel OK. Uh, and then we get one of my favorite closing shots in any movie, which is just again, it's the open road and Sarah's narration just saying, you know, we, we now don't know what the future holds. Uh, and, but it's slightly like it's both menacing and optimistic at the same time. And, and of course, she says, you know, yeah, even if a machine, a Terminator can learn the value of human life, maybe we can, too. And that should be patent cliche, but I think that hits like a truck. Like, I think that that is such a perfect button for this movie, given the themes that they've been working us through the whole way. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it tight storytelling, you know, had a very clear underlying message that it never hit you over the head with, but but powerfully showed us throughout the whole way and just put a bow on it on the end. And it's so much better than the alternate ending they had, which they did shoot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was going to ask if you wanted to talk about that. The, the yeah, other go one. ahead. Again. I, you know, uh, I'll be honest. I have not seen that one in years. Um, I just remembered, you know, it's with uh, an older, you know, Linda Hamilton's in older makeup, you know, years in the future. Mm. You know, everything's okay. She's, I think she's in that same park uh, that yes. was featured multiple times. And I just remember it not being very good. Like, I'm glad that it did not end that way. Yeah, there's a couple. Things. So the, the scene of her in the park that we see in the nightmare um, in the full like director's cut version of all these deleted scenes we've been talking about. There are actually, I think, three scenes in that park. They cut, oh. they keep coming back to it as a recurring motif. Um, so there's one early on. Um, there's the one with the nightmare. And there's this one where it's like it's the future. So she's in that same park, but everything's fine. And there's like, you know, shining, glittering, futuristic buildings in the background that don't look they're just not up to the special effects standards of the rest of the movie but beyond that like i don't like that i i like the ambiguous ending it's like did we prevent judgment day you know we don't john's still alive so maybe not um but you know there there's hope in the uncertainty of not knowing what the future will be um it's so strong I, again, I will say I actually kind of think the ending of Terminator 3 is kind of an interesting idea from a sci-fi writing perspective, but I don't like any of it because it undo uh, it undoes this. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, but that is that is Terminator 2, guys. We we did it. Um, so I'll ask the question I always ask, which is, you know, why do you think this movie has endured for 32 years? Why why do we still love Terminator 2 today? I I think uh, Ken put it best. Uh... I think, I think he said it's really this perfect storm, just everything, you know, it's, uh, and then Doug, you said like best sci-fi, 
best action, best Arnold movie, you know, like one of the best like stories just in general, great acting, great music, great editing, great special effects. I mean, just like every category works. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that. And also, you know, something we, we really hadn't talked about yet is um, the idea of Skynet. And so I think there are a lot of ideas that underpin this movie that continue to be really relevant, like in terms of when are the computers going to wake up and become intelligent? And, um, you know, and we're running into that with AI right now. And, you know, everyone talks about AI and all these uh, systems becoming like Skynet. Skynet's kind of in the uh, pop culture consciousness because of this movie. And uh, I think that it speaks to a fear, a human fear of this technology becoming so advanced that it could turn around and annihilate us. Uh, I think it's a, it's a fear we seem to have. Uh, and I think that's why this movie continues to be very relevant. You know, I agree with you, Ken. I, I think there's something cool about the fact that we never see Skynet in this movie. It is a, you know, it's, it technically hasn't been invented yet, but it's like, it, we, we could see it in the future, I suppose, but it is a faceless threat. Uh, you know, I keep coming back to the Lord of the Rings, but it's like Sauron. Like it's, it's in the background. It's not physically present. We only see its agents and um, the way they kind of have Skynet cast a pall over the entire movie, because one thing that's you know, kind of of paramount importance in any time travel movie is causality. That's the, the thing that's always in play, right? We're trying to change the way time goes or we're trying to ensure that time goes you know, a certain way and not get changed. Um, quick preview, we're going to be doing Back to the Future next. Nice. So, you know, it's, you know, that is like, obviously that movie is all about like, uh oh, we fucked up the timeline. Yeah. This movie is, it's all about this looming threat. And so, like, we talked about all of the, um, like, the incredible emotions that Sarah Connor shows in this movie. All of that is because she knows the future. The Terminators know the future. Everybody knows the future. The, the Everything the Dysons go through is because they are told what the future holds. And that tension, like, yes, there's individual tension in the moments of, like, uh-oh, how are they going to get away from the T-1000? But the larger threat of, of like, we can't escape inevitability and the t-1000 absolutely is like in inevitability incarnate right and there's something about that menace that makes this movie even though it's not a quote-unquote horror movie there's something very unsettling watching this movie like just you feel these characters are just on this fucking conveyor belt that they are desperate to get out of um and you then you add into that the the humanity in the story both from the, the Connors' perspective and from the T-800s. And you just have this recipe for something that, you know, transcends its action movie roots. And like, you know, yeah, you can have all the exciting explosions in the world, but it's that emotional thing that this movie delivers so well. That's what, like, I keep coming back to, even after I've seen all the CGI in the world. Yeah. And I'll just say that, like, I know that there's no way, especially in 1991, that an, an action sci-fi movie that got number one most money gross at the box office was ever going to be nominated for the quote-unquote creative Oscars, even though it got, like, cinematography and effects and all these other things. But, like, I honestly think that the acting performances in this could go up against anyone who was nominated that year for supporting Best Actor, Best Actress, any of that. 
I would have been Jody Foster and Anthony Hopkins. So that was a tough competition that year. Yeah. Um, but yeah. All right. Um, so guys, we've done it. Um, I loved having you on for this episode. This is so much fun. I've been dying to do this movie. It's been on the, the short list for a long time. Um, so, um, Rich, uh, where can our listeners find you if they want to find your good works? Oh, if you're interested in improv classes uh, or testing out improv, you can take a impro- drop in for free with me. Find me at Rich Baker Coaching on Instagram or richbakercoaching.com. Ken? Well, if you're interested in uh, tornado chasing or uh, Cobra Kai, Karate Kid, or movies in general, uh, you can check me out on YouTube at Ken Cole or follow me at Kenergy Cole on all the social media channels. And uh, where would I find Ken Cast if I was going to watch that? Oh, KenCast is available on all podcast platforms. It's my podcast. Uh, we have KenCast Live on my YouTube channel, and then uh, we have discussions that uh, come on KenCast. So look up KenCast uh, where you listen to podcasts. Awesome. And uh, I highly recommend you seek out both of these guys because they put out amazing stuff. And uh, if you like this show, of course, like, rate, subscribe, uh, go on iTunes or, or Podcast Addict and drop it a nice review. Uh, that helps us out a bunch. If you have thoughts on our recent episodes, including Terminator 2, uh, before this was Rocky 4, and then, uh, gosh, The Far Side, Disney songs going back a bit, going into the future. As I mentioned, we have Back to the Future coming up, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, what else is in the mix? Chrono Trigger, Yu-Gi-Oh!, like a whole bunch of stuff. So um, real exciting stuff uh, coming for this like summer of bangers. So uh, that's what I'll have to call it. Um, so yeah, and of course, if you want to send us feedback, tweet it to at NostalgiumPod or follow us on Instagram. Uh, just put in Nostalgium Arcanum and you'll find it. And please follow us there because I'll put bonus stuff, uh, reels out every week on different topics. So look for us there. And uh, thanks again, gentlemen. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Well, it's time to say hasta la vista, baby. And uh, until next time, that is one more entry in the Nostalgium Arcanum. The unknown future rolls toward us. I face it for the first time with a sense of hope. Because if a machine, a Terminator, can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too.